Our second reading this morning picks up in the story at, at verse 15. When the angels had left them and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let us go now to Bethlehem and see this thing that has taken place, which God has made known to us. So they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the child lying in a manger. When they saw this, they made known what they had been told about this child. And all who heard it were amazed what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured all these words and pondered them in her heart. The shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told to them. We celebrate the written word of scripture. Thanks be to God. We celebrate the living word, Christ among us. Thanks be to God. Please pray with me. Loving God, in the beginning was the word and the word was with you and the word became flesh and dwelt in the midst of us. As we experience the word, this morning and on into the evening, on into the night. May the word become flesh and dwell in us. Amen. This is the day that we tell the story, the story of Christmas, the story of Jesus' birth. It happens every year, but I still find it pretty amazing that all around the world, Across Christmas traditions, most Christmas traditions, some have a different date, but most Christmas traditions, today and tonight, we will all be telling the same story, this one story. It started on the other side of the world, and here we are, and it will go on into the deep dark of the night, into the warm glow of candlelight. This is the day and the night when we tell the story all around the world. It's the same story, and yet each community will tell this beloved story in their own way, out of their own culture, their own lived experience, with their own traditions, this year with maybe one or two innovations, but not too many. Some of you know that on Monday mornings, I often hop on a Zoom call with other minister colleagues and friends across the presbytery. It's a regular opportunity for whoever can log in to check in to be with colleagues, to be with friends for support and to hear a bit of what's up in the congregations that we serve and love. So I happen to know that this morning, one church in our presbytery will be celebrating a Merry Christmas by talking about the messy in the Mary. I love that, the messy in the Mary. Another church is doing a series of three plays to tell the story over three Sundays. They even imagined for a little while that they might try, try to tell a mashup of a Christmas carol, you know, the one with Scrooge, and the manger scene story. I put those two together, but, but they got stumped when they tried to figure out how the ghost of Christmas past could show up in Bethlehem when Christmas hadn't happened yet. <laughs> Think about that. Pretty mind-blowing, huh? We're talking time-space continuum stuff. And here in this community, we will tell the story with our traditions. Tonight at 6, the kids will share their new, new Christmas star play. And then at 9, the choir will lead us in a service of lessons and carols and candlelight. This morning, as we come to this last leg of our long journey toward joy, we are telling the story 
looking for joy, looking with open and eager hearts for the joy of that night. And as the story starts, it throws us right into the existing situation. The story starts not with the manger, but with Caesar. Caesar Augustus declares a census and directs everyone across the known world, across the Roman Empire, to travel to their hometown to be registered. Now, this isn't a census merely to count heads for the sake of counting heads. This is about the power of empire and the power of taxation. The empire wants everyone to be registered so that the empire can extract every last dime out of every last person and every last bit of land so that it can do those things that empire does. As one writer says, Rome's long shadow falls over Jesus's life right from the start. And when Caesar says move, people move. Imagine the whole known world going into motion. Imagine if all of us had to go back to the place our families were from to be counted and taxed. Mary and Joseph enter the stream of this great imperial forced movement of people. They set out Joseph and Mary, who is great with child. They set out to travel the 90 miles or so to Bethlehem, maybe with the help of a donkey, but even more likely entirely on foot. They come to Bethlehem, and we arrive on the scene in the midst of that night as Bethlehem sleeps. I think of the words we love to sing, O little town of Bethlehem, how still we see thee lie. Above thy deep and dreamless sleep, the silent stars go by. Amid those sleeping streets, we know that in their day, as in ours, there are those who work and watch and weep. Yes, there are workers fast asleep, exhausted from a grueling day's work. Some, some have gone to bed hungry. They pray for our daily bread because in their day, there are days with no bread. Some folks have been begging all day long trying to survive however they can. These folks have found shelter outside wherever they can. I do wonder if Bethlehem really sleeps a dreamless sleep. There must be some who stir in wakefulness, putting a cool damp cloth on the fevered brow of a sick child or weeping quietly at the loss of one they love or because of a broken heart. There must be those who lie there wide awake with worry, churning over and over in their thoughts all those hopes and fears of all the years. They may be praying with the Psalms, those songs they know by heart. We might pray with them. Watch now, dear God, with those who work or watch or weep and give your angels charge over those who sleep. In the midst of this sleeping town, scripture tells us in its spare prose, the time comes for Mary to give birth. And Mary births Jesus. She wraps him in strips of cloth and she lays him in a manger because there is no room for him in the inn. From those few words, that's all that scripture says. From those few words, we have imagined what that must have looked like. 
But let's look carefully at the few words that are there. The Greek word that's translated there as in, it's not actually the word for a public inn where wandering travelers might find lodging. The word here is the word for guest quarters in a family dwelling. I learned this week that it's the same word that's used in two of the Gospels for the upper room where Jesus hosts the Last Supper. There was no room for them in the upper guest room. If you can picture it, a family in the ancient Near East would likely have lived in a structure that accommodated both the family and the animals. The family would live on one end of the structure, and the other end would be separated off into stalls for the animals, and, and in between there'd be a living area, a gathering area for the family, and then above that, above that, if the family could afford it, there might be an upper room for guests. We picture an inn. And we have imagined into the story a surly innkeeper who turns them away. But Bethlehem was a small town. I read one historian, this is another thing I learned this week, who says it may have been as small as 100 people. And if it was Joseph's family town, it was Joseph's family town, we know that. So it's unlikely that Joseph knew no one in this town. So imagine this. Imagine this. The inn where Mary and Joseph arrive is the home of a distant cousin. The innkeeper who greets them is the woman of the house. It is census time, and the house is indeed full. The guest room, the upper room, has been taken. And whoever's staying there, they must be someone who outranks Joseph because the needs of this young woman about to give birth, they don't override the priority of hierarchy. Maybe the innkeeper, maybe she does want to turn them away. She just wants some sleep. I bet she's exhausted from all this hospitality as all of her distant relatives arrive in town to be counted. And here are two more mouths to feed, soon to be three, two more folks who need shelter, one who is about to give birth. But this innkeeper, standing in the threshold of her home, looks at Mary, who's just walked 90 miles in her ninth month, and she looks at Mary, and compassion washes over her. She can feel in her body what this moment must be like for this girl. And so she says quietly, so not as to wake those who are sleeping, there is no room in the upper room, but come in and we'll set you up here in the midst of things. I'll stoke the fire back up and you'll have to put up with the sounds and smells of the animals and I'll start cooking in a few hours so it'll be busy. But there's no room for you in the upper room, but we can make some room for you here. She helps Mary and Joseph settle in and at some point in the night, Mary goes into labor. This woman, innkeeper, and the other women of the house, they do what women in their day did. They surround Mary with what she needs out of the little that they have. One holds her hand. They talk her through what's going to come next. They midwife Mary together. They bring this child into the world. 
And when Jesus is born, this woman, the innkeeper, she hollers out to Joseph, who they have relegated to sleep in the stall with the donkey and the sheep while all this happens, and she tells him to come and hold his son, their son. Let's consider for a moment the joy of this woman who midwifed Mary. She started her day with way too much to do and far too many people to feed and host in a world where no one has much. She has stretched what they have as far as it will go just like she does every single day. And just as the day winds down in her weary world, more kinfolk arrive on the doorstep and she can't turn them away. What unfolds though, what she experiences through the night in the midst of all this is this. She gets to help bring a child into the world in the company of her daughters and her mother and her sisters, she gets to help a distant relative birth a new life. And in this world of scarcity for a moment, just a moment, there is enough. Let's pause and consider for a moment her joy. Now, not far off, there are shepherds keeping watch by, of their flocks by night. In the trees, as Shira told us last week, there are probably some owls watching too. Now, you've probably heard about shepherds. Our shepherds tonight will be precious, I promise, the angels too, but in their day, Mary and Joseph's day, shepherds are among the poor and the outcast of the world. They are dirty. The religious authority, authorities would have called them unclean, and that too would have cut them off from the embrace of community. In just about every possible way, they are as far away from the halls of power as one can imagine. This story begins with Caesar and his census, but the great good news doesn't come to him. It doesn't come to those who wield power over. It comes to the shepherds. It comes to the lowly. And angels bring the news. Now there's nothing precious about these angels either. In Scripture, Old Testament, New Testament, angels are fiery messengers from the heavens sent with word from the divine for a trembling humanity. Why do angels start every conversation with be not afraid? It's because angels are terrifying and people are actually afraid. The first terrifying angel appears to the shepherds in the night watch, the most perilous time of night, and says, be not afraid, I bring you good tidings of great joy for all people. This is not a message to Caesar or for Caesar. It's not good news only for the powerful or only for the rich. It is good news for all people. It must be good news for all people, shepherds, because I'm bringing it to you first. Unto you, shepherds. Unto you is born a child, and he is the Messiah, the Christ, the Lord. This child lying in a manger is the one who will save you from everything that does you harm, even from Caesar. And then an army of fiery angels appears singing a gloria. Glory to God in the highest heavens and on earth 
peace. On earth, peace. And just as soon as they appeared, the angels are gone. The shepherds rush toward the city of David, somehow find their way to Mary and this child in a manger. And the shepherds tell the story. They are the first ones to tell this good news. And the shepherds rejoice. They are overflowing with joy. Joy notwithstanding their lowly place in the order of things, notwithstanding the daily indignities, notwithstanding the imperial power swirling all around them. They are overflowing with good news for all people, for earth peace. You can almost hear Mary singing back to them, God is lifting up the lowly. God is filling the hungry with good things. Let's pause and consider for a moment the joy of the shepherds. And then there is Mary in a sentence filled with quiet power. Scripture says this, but Mary treasured all these things and pondered them in her heart. In this story that we love to tell, Mary is the one who grasps it all. Mary is the one who knows. Mary is the one to whom the angel came. Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will bear a child who will be the son of the Most High and who will reign forever. Mary is the one who has carried Jesus in her body these nine months, the very first to bear Christ. Mary is the one to whom Elizabeth says, Blessed are you, mother of my Lord. Mary is the one who has walked 90 miles, given birth to a baby in what is essentially a barn, and who now receives shepherds not so fresh from the fields, spilling over with wild stories of terrifying angels, of good news so great that it will topple every power that does, it harm, does us harm, and lift up those who have been held low for so very long. The world has just turned. And Mary, Mary is the one who has seen and heard it all. Mary is the one who holds the baby Jesus in her arms and rests her head on his chest and listens through the din of the world. She listens for the very heartbeat of God. Let's consider for a moment the joy of Mary. We have said on this Advent journey that joy. Joy is the fresh presence of God rising up out of the saving action of God across all time, from the very beginning on out into forever. We know that tonight, even as we tell this story all around the world, there are people who will work and watch and weep. We know that tonight the people of Bethlehem will sleep a restless sleep. 
We know that not far off in Gaza, families weep from the utter destruction of their lives and their world, mourning for so many far, far too many killed and driven from their homes, even as Israeli families watch for the return of loved ones held hostage and mourn their own dead. We know that in Ukraine, families stagger two years mired in war. We know the violence that haunts our own streets, the division and discord, the injustice of systemic oppression that persists down through the generations. We know the ache of our own day and our own lives. When we tell this story in our world, in our day, today, we tell the great good news of God's steadfast love and God's forever longing for human flourishing. We speak of God's power of love and justice and peace stronger than every power that does us harm, stronger than every harm that we do. When we tell this story, we speak and sing of joy because, joy because of all the goodness we encounter the world, fresh as the morning, sure as the sunrise. We speak of joy notwithstanding all the troubles that persist in the world. We speak of joy against, joy that compels us to stand against everything that works in opposition to human flourishing. We speak and sing joy because God has come to us in Jesus Christ. We speak and sing joy because God is present with us now. We speak and sing joy because God is always, always, always on the way. Today, as we tell this story with everyone who has told it before, with everyone around the world who is telling it even now, we find our way to joy, the fresh presence of God rising up in the midst of us.